Can We Change the World for Liberty? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Nigel Ashford. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Nigel Ashford. Nigel is a senior programs officer at the Institute for Humane Studies. He joined IHS from the United Kingdom, where he was a professor of politics and Jean Monnet scholar in European integration at Staffordshire University, England. Nigel has also directed the Principles for a Free Society project and was a Bradley resident scholar at the Heritage Foundation and visiting scholar at the Social and Philosophy Policy Centre in Bowling Green. Nigel, welcome back to The Curious Task. It's, it's been a long way since our first episode with you, but, but it's great to have you back on. Thank you so much. Yeah, was it, I think it was the very first one, wasn't it, you did? Yes, yes, for yeah, lis- so listeners who don't know. Yeah, for listeners who don't know, Nigel actually had the honor of being our, our, our first episode ever, What is Classical Liberalism? And I thought that was great. So I'll, I'll thank you again, even though it was a couple of years ago, for your, 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 your being the first victim, if you will, of the, of the podcast. So that was excellent. Thank you. Um, okay, and, and, and Nigel, as you know, I mean, like, we, we really base each episode on a theme or, or question. We go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question mm-hmm. today in the theme of the episode is, can we change the world for liberty? And, you know, I read a chunk of stuff before preparing for this episode, but I really found that this is just a great opportunity to explore your thoughts um, and, and feelings about the whole topic and, and really your experiences as well and tying it to a lot of things about classical liberalism and so on. I actually want to start with sort of a personal question, actually. And, and I think this will tie into our, uh, our, our, the rest of our chat nicely. I mean, ultimately, originally, of, of course, and still, you, you, you have credentials as an academic, right? You could have easily huddled yourself away and taught classes and published papers and never cared about public intellectualism or affiliating yourself with educational institutions or, you know, working with students outside of, of academia, per se, why do you choose to be involved with education institutions and spread ideas? What's so important about spreading ideas beyond just, uh, you know, like, like publishing a paper or working as a professor, for example? Why is this important to you? So if it's not getting too personal, so my original involvement with these ideas was when I was an undergraduate student and I was actively involved with the conservative students in the UK. Uh, and at that time, there was a big fight between various factions, if you like, libertarian, uh, more left, left-wing or blue Tories, as you might, you might call them, or red Tories, I should say, sorry, red Tories, mm-hmm. uh, and also supporters of a, a politician called Enoch Powell, who's more on the far right. Um, so I first got involved with this intellectual engagement when I was a student and involved in, in student politics, and that's where I began reading like classics like Hayek and Buchanan and John Stuart Mill and all those sorts of people. Um, but I uh, discovered that though I enjoyed the intellectual side of it, the political side of it was not so interesting, I would thought. Um, the quality of discussion and debate in politics tends to be rather low. So um, then I so then I was in, very much interested in going into academia, um, and I went on to do a PhD, uh, then I was a professor of, of politics in the UK, uh, and then my current job, I moved to the Institute of Humane Studies at George Mason, 
where we work with students to educate them in classical liberal ideas. And my particular focus on it is helping students who want to become professors. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there are lots of different ways you can contribute to changing the world. Uh, I'm one of those who happens to think that ideas is the most important way to change things. And I think that academia and higher education is one of the main ways in which people discover what their ideas are, what their true beliefs are, uh, by being hopefully challenged by their professors. What do you think that educational institutions like the Institute for Maine Studies or like the Institute for Liberal Studies add or supplement to like, you know, straight up academia that you you think you wouldn't you might not be able to get in academia per se? I'm thinking just a student who just wants to stick to their Ph.D. at their university and, and just, you know, go on to an academic career and isn't thinking of it in the broader sense. But what do educational institutions do that you think is so important? Oh, so one of the well, so let's separate undergraduates from PhDs. And focus right. on, on PhDs, which is what I'm uh, concerned with, is that the, your dissertation tends to be something fairly narrow and specific. And the PhD student is very much focused on that. And what I find is, is that they lose the bigger picture about the way I was asked them, why should anybody else care what you do? Because they're so into it, they don't actually think about that very well. Right. Very much. So my concern is to get them to think about, so what's the bigger picture? What are you contributing to our knowledge? Why do people who are not inherently interested in what you're doing should be interested? And I think that, uh, that institutes like the IHS, ILS, they can help uh, the students get outside of the bubble of their own dissertation to think about uh, ideas, where their ideas fit in more broadly to the intellectual climate. Right. And I think for undergraduates, um, I wish that undergraduates, we could be sure that undergraduates would be faced with a variety of different perspectives. And that's, I think, what a good academic does. But increasingly, I find that students, undergraduates, have not come across any of the ideas in their regular classes. So I have no problem with the fact that, broadly speaking, uh, most academics are to the left. That, to me, is not a problem. What is a problem is when the academics don't present people with a variety of perspectives. To say there's this this, this issue or this way uh, that we need to think about, and then this is what liberals, conservatives, progressives, libertarians think about that issue. Here's the readings that you can read if you want to understand all these different perspectives on this question. Um, and then you can sort out for yourself what you think that I, those ideas are. Uh, increasingly, I find that undergraduates are not getting that broader perspectives uh, in their typical undergraduate education. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a great, great segue into my next question. I mean, like, 
uh, of course. And I mean, you're you're quite older than I am, Nigel. I mean that in the most complimentary way, not not a bad one. I think there's a lot of wisdom from from folks that are not just older than most of the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. From, from folks that are not not as young as me, for example, only about around the age of thirty. I think there's there's a lot of wisdom to be drawn for the folks who've been dealing with ideas for quite some time. I mean, let me take one example. You talk about ideas and exposure to different sort of arenas of them. Some younger folks have never had to interact with. For example, now I'm going back to things that were talked about in the you know 70s and 80s and 90s, for example, quite seriously. Some younger folks have never had to interact with truly committed, for example, state communist idealists, for example, where there actually was an example such as the Soviet Union or specifically the way China was running at the time. And people were actually, um, you know, proponents of, of these things. Um, you know, you probably you actually have probably dealt with sort of ideas like this and come up against those at the time. Can, can, can you talk a bit about what the intellectual climate was like, especially from a lowercase l liberal perspective, you know, when these, these ideas were actually around quite seriously, for instance, like state commies in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Was there a problem, for example, with people really being not as exposed to as you think they ought to have been to, for instance, classical liberal ideas like Milton Friedman and such? Most people in the classical liberal circles love to talk about free to choose and all the media that Milton got at, at the time, for example. But th- there was, of course, a lot more going on than just our inside baseball. So c- can you sort of talk a bit about the arena ideas at that time and how important? Oh, yeah. So at the moment, I think uh, there's a, a lot of criticism of liberalism. Liberalism, that broadly understood, is under a lot of uh, attack, both on the left and the right. And I find a lot of classical liberals are a bit depressed about the state of affairs, Uh, And I certainly think we should be worried about it. Uh, But I still go back and compare it to what it was like in the 1970s, for example, when half the world was controlled by communists, that that was what we were spending a lot of our time in in intellectual engagement with, trying to avoid the military engagement with the intellectual engagement. There were still a lot of people in the world who thought that communism was the right way forward. And then in domestic policy... Uh, it was really uh, accepted that government had to play a big role in running the economy and running society, that that was the norm. That was a general view in all major political parties uh, in the 1970s. And then you saw that being challenged. And I would say, and then, well, politically it was challenged by people like Thatcher and Reagan, uh, for example, but I would say the crucial factor was the intellectual work that he'd done, like big scholars like Friedman and, uh, and Hayek, etc. Cannon. Um, they laid the intellectual foundation. So when there was this incredible crisis that occurred in the in the late sixties and, and early seventies, which I think is, is we think things are terrible now. They were much, much, much worse then. Um, and the the default position was, well, government needed to do more. Um, communism was going to be there forever. Uh, and then there were some, I think, intellectuals or scholars that brought the ideas and say, no, we don't have to accept these ideas. There is an alternative. So, um, and then... As I said, we thought we saw a big rise of um, classical liberal ideas, even though 
Reagan and Thatcher were certainly not perfect classical liberals. Right. That's for sure. Uh, but because there was a crisis and as politicians need to do something about it, and they were looking for ideas, and then they found these uh, scholars, these ideas which were out there that they were then able to take and put forward. Mm-hmm. So one of the broader questions I'm interested in is what is the role of scholars and intellectuals in achieving change? And I think they're very, very important, but some people would say they're not, that intellectuals like to think they're important, but they're not as important as they are. Right. So that's one question is the importance of intellectuals or ideas versus interests is one big political one debate about how to change the world. And then the other question is, is the role of circumstances is that you may have the ideas out there, but if there aren't the circumstances where these ideas can be drawn upon or seen as solutions to the problems you have at the time. Mm-hmm. So some circumstances are more open to new ideas than, than others. Right. And I, I want to talk very, very specifically about some of today's problems in general or, you know, facing lowercase l liberals, say, but but just sticking with sort of the, the era we were just talking about, you know, late 60s, 70s and into the 80s as well, just so people can tease out your thoughts on this interest versus ideas and so on paradigm. Like, can, can you just use use that era sort of as an as an example? What was the solution at the time? What kind of interests and ideas and so on and so forth what was the solution to some of the problems oh, that at least so you the, would have viewed you're big, facing? The, the big debate on this question, I think, is to what extent is political change driven by ideas, the fairly abstract ideas that come from scholars and intellectuals, and then perhaps through the public opinion reach the policymakers, or to what extent is um, political change driven by interests, the idea that people are predominantly driven by their own self-interest, and not, the role of ideas is much more limited. So, uh, for example, some of the listeners might be familiar with public choice theory, and public choice very much emphasizes the importance of interests. I think a successful uh, political change, you have the ideas, but the ideas, I think, then influence the interests. The ideas on, by themselves may not be able to achieve the change, if they're not tied up in some way with interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to give you, and sorry, I can't give you Canadian examples, uh, but let me give the, the British example. So um, classical liberal scholars would say that um, what you want is to have a free a housing market as possible. And in the United Kingdom, in the, in the 60s and early 70s, um, public housing, people in government-owned housing, was almost half the population. Hmm. And the scholars were saying, this is a uh, this is not very efficient, not very effective, uh, for various reasons people neglect. If they don't own their own property, they tend not to look after it. Um, it discourages building of new houses, and that leads to a housing shortage. So somewhere like uh, Thatcher would say, oh, I understand that, 
what we need to do is try and privatise as much of the housing stock as we can, take it out of control of the public sector. The problem there is, is that the people who are in the public housing find this a bit scary that they that their, their housing that they thought they could rely on might suddenly become privatised. What would happen to them? So their interest they might perceive as being threatened by it. And so the Thatcher solution was, was that to try and make it possible for people in, in state housing, public housing, to be able to buy their housing, their apartment or their house, at a cheaper rate. Mm. So rather than saying the full market rate, which many of them couldn't afford, let's say sell it for them at 30%, 40% of what the value of that of that their house or apartment would be, well, then that gives them an incentive to support the idea of privatizing public housing because that they feel then they have a chance for them to um, get their own houses and something that they can afford. So instead of it being a threat to them, they saw it as an advantage to them. So that would be one example. I'll, I'll give another one, right? Um, is how do you combine the ideas, the recognition that public housing was negative for the housing sector with how do you create incentives for people to accept those changes and not feel that their own interests were were threatened? So another example, Thatcher um, is now famous for privatising a lot of industries that in the UK at the time were owned by the state. So steel industry, railways, for example. Um, a lot of the public, a lot of the major industries in the UK at the time were uh, run by the state, owned by the state, and there were major problems, for example, with them going constantly on strike. So she thought that the economy would be much more efficient if these state-owned industries were moved over to the private sector. But then you had this problem I identified before, the people who were working in those industries felt like they were under threat. What right. the hell will happen to my jobs if this changes? So what she did was to give uh, either free or very low-cost shares in the privatised railways and the privatised steel industries. So the employees in those sectors would would say, "Oh, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm a probably going to keep my job anyway because those sectors are going to go forward." But B, now I have a my own interest in that sector, uh, having my my industry being privatized. So it's a question: of How do you combine this element of interest, sorry, of ideas? knowing what is the right thing to do with interests, understanding why people might be scared of achieving or making these substantial changes. Mm -hmm. And that's, those are great examples. And the climate around all of this changes and happenings. I mean, you met, you mentioned this before and before I move on to some of today's issues, I, I do want to just dig into something a little further because you already touched on it, but I do want to explore it a little further. You, you mentioned that 
And all of this is sort of within the context or at the end of a context that you said, as far as lowercase l liberalism was concerned, things were much worse at that time than they are today, even though today we certainly have our own problems. Could you go into a, a little further? I mean, like, I know we, we talked about the, the literal communist threats and so on and so forth, but what, what else in, in your mind even made that sort of intellectual time and climate worse than some of the things we have to deal with today? Oh, so some of the things I've already alluded to is that is that the communism was ruled half the world, and many people thought that was inevitable that this would never change. Um, and much of the uh, industry and business uh, was owned by the public sector, was owned by the state, and much of the major industries were not in the private were not in the private sector, they were owned by the state. Um, you had very high levels of inflation, which is something, again, we now see inflation bad now, right. but it was much worse in the 60s and 70s. Um, you, you saw major strikes. Um, you saw that people uh, people's rubbish were not collected, that... Um, uh, Union, un, the unions were very much in power. The general exception, oh, it was generally accepted that you needed some control over wages and incomes and profits. That this was the own, this was the best way of trying to deal with inflation and all the problems that arose from it. Mm. So this was a general consensus at the time that government had to play a very important role. And then when government did play this role and things got worse and worse, then I think people were then opened up to looking to alternative uh, points of view. Mm-hmm. Do, do, do you remember running into decent numbers of other intellectuals at the time that were earnestly f- quite open proponents of moving towards, you know, state communism and like uh, uh, different countries or were open proponents of state communism. I ask this question because today, today a lot of young folks, and and I, and I say this not disparagingly at all, like, you know, some of them uh, that are lowercase L liberals might run into people that are social Democrats, other maybe anarchist socialists, but it is actually rare to find earnest state communists. And uh, basically like, and, and, you know, you hear from a lot of the folks around at the time that you would be in rooms of people that were quite like, nope, the Soviet Union, we have to do something like that. Was that even common in your experience? Oh, well, I'm not saying that was common, but I can give my own personal example that in my first academic position uh, up in Scotland, the, the head of the department was what we called a tanky. Right. And what a tanky meant was that they were Stalinists. He was a Stalinist who defended the, the Soviets going into Czechoslovakia right. in 1968. Right. So these were people who thought that, uh, that communism was so important that um, that they would defend doing these terrible things. Or um, at the at the time, there was a, a probably the most prominent British historian at the time was a guy called Eric Hobsbawm, who was a Marxist historian. Right. He was the most influential historian uh, in the UK at the time. He was a Marxist and he was willing to defend the Soviet Union against uh, against these changes. Um, 
yeah, in Ireland, he's trying to remember some names, but um, one of the major textbooks about uh, politics at the time uh, was written by a Marxist. But yeah, Marxist uh, ideas was very prevalent mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, those, um, those are interesting one, examples. One small story about my about uh, having a Stalinist head of department. What was ironic was the major group of my colleagues were Trotskyites. Mm. So I see. they were communists. <laughs> they were communists, but they didn't like the Stalinists. Right. So a lot of the fighting was between the Stalinists and the Trotskyites. And I was and I found myself usually on the side of the Trotskyites. Yes, naturally, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so <laughs> Yeah, quite extraordinary, um, quite extraordinary that that was what the domination was at the time. Um, sorry, I'm bringing lots of memories going back. So the National Union of Students, which is the, was the, the student organization supposed to, be, supposed to represent British, the president of that was a communist most of the time in the 60s and 70s. Right. Wow. See, like, see, even though, even though these are a handful of examples, I think a lot of people listening, especially if any students are listening, they might be they might have a harder time finding a Stalinist department head uh, these uh, days. So that's still yeah, quite yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Wow. No, but now of course, is Stalin is not real communism, is what people say. Yeah, that's a whole whole different topic for sure, and and a whole different episode perhaps. Um, and and actually, on that note, maybe maybe I, we do move ourselves. Onto today, because I did want to sort of bridge over to that. I mean, like, I, I think you did a great job illustrating, even with some examples there, some of the both the uh, the the ideas and interests that were being discussed at the time, and also some of the intellectual climate. Um, you said, as for lowercase l liberals, like you know, this it, it was might have been in some ways worse at the time, as, as uh, you know, and things looked a little more dire. But as, as far as today. When you look around with your experience and your observations today, what do you think are some of the biggest threats to genuine ideas of to genuine lowercase l liberal ideas today? What do you see as some of the, the current challenges? Well, I think whether so, I'd say this. Well, there's lots of them. Let's pick out two, I suppose. One was the Great Recession. Uh, I think that had a great impact on uh, young people because it completely destabilized their their uh, expectations about what the world would become like for them in the future. So difficulties in terms of the job market, uh, being able to um, think about buying a home, putting themselves into student debt. Um, it really, I think, shook up the optimism that young people normally have about what the future might hold. So the Great Recession was, I think, a major setback for liberal ideas because, I'm, because the narrative that this was a failure of capitalism is, I think, incorrect. I think the Great Recession was caused by lots of regulations, particularly in the housing market, uh, but also with decisions by the central banks, mm-hmm. they were the major causes of the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. But that is not the narrative that dominated. The narrative that dominated 
was that it was the failure of markets, failure right. of capitalism. Um, and then perhaps when more, more deeply back, I think a lot of that had to do with the whole debate about the causes of the Great Depression in the 1930s, that the, the, com the, the common narrative, and I remember that's what I was taught in, uh, you know, when I was studying the period um, as a student, the dominant narrative was that capitalism failed, Keynesianism and government intervention in what the US would call the New Deal, that's what saved us from uh, the Depression. Even though a lot of more native scholars, they said, no, it wasn't. It was often government policies, and most particularly bad decision-making by the Fed, by the federal banks or central banks, which led to the Great Depression, and that the interventionism that occurred actually lengthened and deepened the depression. It would have been over much more quickly without that Keynesian intervention. But that is not what is, was taught, and I think still is taught, uh, in the history books, in the economics textbooks, in the political science textbooks. So when you've got the Great Recession coming, then this narrative of the depression, I think, dominated that uh, so quickly. So many people's, younger people's views about um, how the, the market economy should work um, is very much framed by that particular uh, experience of that. Mm -hmm. um, a second big problem, I think, was COVID because there is, there is a role for government to, to carry out. And I think in a, in a, in a pandemic is an area uh, but what I think you saw was that people very quickly came to the view that government could solve all the problems of COVID, that everyone was entitled to get all the economic support they needed to get through COVID without thinking about what is going to be the longer-term consequences of, of these changes. Right. The change expect that government would help them. And what I don't think people really have connected up so far is how much the, the policies that we pursued, the economic policies we pursued during the COVID period, that is what led to inflation, which is really damaging uh, everybody at all levels of, of society. Right. But people weren't aware of that. So they're like, oh, we had a crisis, and we'll get us through the through the COVID pandemic, uh, therefore we should look to government to uh, to help us. So right. that I think has become more and more common idea that uh, freedom is dangerous, and government is the solution to our problems. Right, and actually, I think. I have a bunch of follow-up questions to that, but that is an excellent time to take our break. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Nigel Ashford today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including... Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. 
Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Nigel Ashford today. Nigel, I think the first half was great. We were talking about, you know, the intellectual climate uh, that was seen some decades ago and what lowercase liberals uh, had to deal with at the time. We were talking about some of today's problems. You were just talking about the Great Recession and also uh, COVID. Um, And I think we, we laid down that foundation quite nicely. I would like to move us a little bit on right on the tail of that to sort of the uh, the the tactics, I guess, as far as spreading ideas and perhaps countering at least what from what the liberal perspective would be not the best ideas. Um, is the idea still the same as what we saw, for instance, decades ago with the you know let's call it the seventies and eighties sort of classical uh, liberal revival where some of these ideas came around? Is it just about getting out there on the intellectual side and spreading ideas? What what do you think is the way to answer some of these challenges? Uh, well, I think it does start with gaining an understanding of the foundations of the ideas. So, dare I recommend you look at the first episode <laughs> of The Curious Task, <laughs> which, which will bring us back to what those foundational principles are. So I do think that's where to start. Uh, but the, the second part of it is is then how applying those ideas to the issues and problems of the world of the world today. So so my worry about that we should spend too much time like, oh how wonderful things were in the past. Right. Uh, and not recognizing that the world is different now. And therefore we have to engage with what are the problems and issues that are that are before people today. So for example, like student debt. Right. Um, that's clearly a major issue in the United States, perhaps less so in, in Canada. Um, and we, I don't think, done a very good, good like, we've not done a very good job of explaining what is the causes of that problem. And that simply uh, saying, oh, well, the debt, would, the debt would disappear doesn't actually solve the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that the incentives for universities themselves have been to let the costs of their, of their institutions and going to their universities to grow and grow and grow. Whereas most uh, sectors, there's been uh, the, um, the cost of buying a particular product has gone down and down and down. Not as low as we'd like it to be, but it's gone in the right direction. But there are certain sectors, and, and higher education is one of them, where it's much more expensive now per person than it was. And the solution that people say is, oh, well, government needs to, to spend more on higher education. Uh, but we've got to say, well, why is it that it's so expensive? And I don't think we've given sufficient attention to that question of what the problems are with the, with the higher education. Mm. Um, about it's the economic side of it and the burden that it places on students is, I think, the major problem. And we've spent perhaps, perhaps classical levels we've drawn into it, spend too much time worrying about the ideological makeup of higher education, whereas what we need to do is to give more of a structural analysis of 
of the problems with higher education and what sort of changes that need to occur there. Mm-hmm. Uh, or another area is housing. Housing is, I think, a major problem uh, for young people. They feel pessimistic about their ability to eventually buy their own, uh, own property. Um, and yet I see you know, constant articles about the housing crisis in California, uh, and yet most of the commentators don't talk about, well, that's because it's extremely difficult to build new housing. The regulation right. makes it extremely expensive to build new housing. And yet I will read articles in the Washington Post or New York Times, which talks about homelessness and the housing problems in California, but don't mention why is it so difficult to uh, build um, build new housing. Right. So one of the, I think, encouraging signs that we have now is the, is the growth of the Yindi movement. Yes, in my backyard. Right. That the NIMBYism, that I, that, oh yeah, we need more housing, but I don't want it anywhere near me, has tended to dominate uh, much of the debate about housing. So there is a proposal to have new housing. Who are the people who will oppose it will be the, the NIMBY people because they see it, think it has a negative effect on them. So it's a, a classic case, I think, of what public choice would call a concentrated uh, benefits and, and dispersed costs. But the other way around, I should say, in this context, is that the people who benefit from new housing, they don't know who they are. Right. They don't know that, oh, if this housing is to be built, then in two years I can buy a house on this property. Right. Whereas the people who lose from it, they know who they are. So the, the costs are uh, they see is, is aligned with them, whereas the benefits are widely dispersed across large numbers of people, but they don't know who they are. It's a, sometimes it's described as, Bastia used the term, the seen and the unseen, that those who see the problems arising from new housing and therefore strongly opposed to it, mm-hmm. but the unseen or all those people that would benefit from housing if they were allowed to be built, mm-hmm. but they don't know who they are and they're not organized. So as an interest, they tend to be neglected in the whole process. Right. So I think it's a, a question of trying to think about what are the what are the, the problems that people face and coming up with, with solutions that emphasize freedom. One area where I am more optimistic about is in the area of school choice. That the one of the few uh, positive externalities, if you like, of COVID was that more and more parents saw the problems with their education that their kids were getting, were getting and that they want alternative solutions. Now, my worry is, again, this may be an American phenomenon, not a Canadian one, is that you see a lot of the attention uh, by conservatives is saying, oh, I don't like what my kids are being taught. Therefore, I want to control what my kids are being taught. 
in school. I don't want um, gays to be represented in in schools. And what you what you end up then was a fight between two groups about who is going to control what the state schools will teach. Right. And here, I think there's a space uh, for liberals to come in to say, is that you can't solve that problem as long as schools are state-run, you're going to get these political fights about who control, and one side or the other will be disappointed. Mm -hmm. Whereas the the liberal approach is the same, but we don't need that. We don't actually need state schools. What we need is is to have private schools, perhaps supported by, by vouchers, so that every kid can go to school, the parents can decide. But there then will end up with a wide variety of different schools, which can satisfy different sorts of tastes. Um, mm-hmm. So the issue is, what are the issues that people are facing today? And how do we get a classical liberal perspective, a free freedom perspective on these sorts of problems? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And, and actually, I mean, that, that's a really good point. I mean, that. You're, you're sort of said it in a couple different ways, but but I reading that you know you're saying that liberalism and those values and those you know essential principles need to sort of be applied and discussed within the context of what concerns people today and, and their interests today, and and the ideas need to be applied that way because because they're the, you know that's a very important point because there's tons of people today, especially y- younger folks, whether they're trying to you know take their first step in a career or you know get their first house or whatever milestone they want to achieve. Their default feeling seems to be that the current economy and even the political systems are not working for them. I mean, when you listen to their grievan- right. when you listen to their grievances, you can often sympathize with why they feel that way. Whether you know we think that there might be different solutions or not, but unfortunately, a lot of people think more government control is is often the answer. So, you know, as far as getting a little more specific on what liberals can do to be more engaging and make the ideas more appealing and interesting. What, what are the sorts of things folks? Cause we, we, you and I both agree that generally speaking, you know, liberalism needs to be relevant to people's interests and concerns today. But, but, but how do we do that? Cause clearly, you know, we can't just tell people read free to choose and talk to me later. I mean, this is, this is a serious engagement issue. I, th- I think at least. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so yeah, I want to come back then to, why was there this revival of classical liberal ideas um, in the late 60s and 70s? And I do think there are three, there are a number of aspects of it, but one is, is that we do need to be clear about our own ideas and then applying them to current problems. And I think we've done, we haven't done a very good job uh, in doing that. So, for example, when the Great Recession occurred, I don't think classical liberals had a very good narrative to explain what had happened. Mm. They developed one later on, but by then they should have moved and moved on. So that's one aspect of it is we we need to understand the ideas and then uh, place them in a or apply them to certain circumstances. The second is can we ident- understand people's interests, what are the concerns that they have? and why their interests will be better served by liberal ideas. So, for example, I deal with housing. People are worried about housing. Can we show them that a more freedom in the housing market would help to save some of their big concerns? Mm-hmm. 
Um, or another area which I didn't talk about is what's very unfortunate is now we hear a lot about crony capitalism. Right. And there's this sort of assumption that capitalism equals cronyism. Mm-hmm. We haven't done a very good job of explaining, no, this is not capitalism, because many of the most successful uh, businesses, they actually manage to be successful because of their relationship with government. Right. That it's often regulations or laws or policies that protect the, the uh, successful industries and make it very difficult for new competitors to enter the market. Right. I'm glad you brought that point up, actually, because I did want to ask your opinion on this very point is, is do you think, uh, not all, of course, we can't be too general, but do you think many uh, lowercase liberals tend to concentrate too much on just the state as the source of basically concentrated power? Because we do live in a world now where t- exactly to your point, to a massive scale, corporations can be in bed with the government. I mean, I think Pete Betke quipped, like, we may as well just call some of today's era neo-mercantilism. Like, you know, when I was talking in the podcast, do you, you know, mm-hmm. I think, you know, it seems to me liberals have to fight concentrated power and the rot in the current system on, on a couple different fronts. It's not it's not just the state. I mean, do, do you do you share that sentiment? Yeah, no, no, I think that's absolutely right. That, it, that as liberals, what we're concerned about is that people should be free to be able to pursue their own ideas about what they want, what, what they think will make them happy. And the state, I think, for various reasons, directly or indirectly, is a major obstacle to that. But it's not the only obstacle uh, to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that I mean, I come back to um, the difficulty, for example, of new competitors entering into competition with Facebook or Google. Um, what we want to do is make it as easy as possible for new young entrepreneurs to be entered into those sectors. And at the moment, it's extremely difficult for them to do so. And we need to figure out what are the ways that would make it easier for that to happen. Mm-hmm. I think one one encouraging thing is that lots of young people want to be their entrepreneurs. They want yeah. to be have their own business and etc. Uh, but they seem that it looks very discouraging for them about how to achieve that. Mm-hmm. So what we should look at is what are the obstacles the people achieving their dreams. Right. I think that's a very good point because I've, I've, you know, met a lot of younger folks that are entrepreneurial. They want to start their own side business or they're working their main gig and, and they actually, their dream is to be sort of like, you know, like, the, you know, their artisan business is now exploding on the internet and they want to like, you know, do that full time. But it's interesting to me and, and I don't know how to solve the problem or, or, or put my thumb on it, but uh, they often view what's an, on first blush, more classical liberal or lowercase l liberal ideas is not really an area they might be interested in. So I think that that might be more of a problem of the way it's presented to them versus them. I don't think they're the problem. I'm not sure if, if, if you agree with what I'm saying, because to no, me, that's, no, a nat- no. that's a natural lowercase l liberal, you know, uh, you know, ripe for like, you know, some, you know, at least to consider those ideas. Like, I think that those ideas would be very interesting to those folks, but they don't seem to get you know, um, the answers or the kind of discussion that they'd be willing to have, on, again, to, to their match their interests. So that's very interesting yeah. to me that you have. Yeah, no, they don't. You know, I don't think they have a good understanding. Well, uh, understanding in the sense about that what they really want to be is they want to participate in the market. Right. 
Right. But they don't think of it sells as in the market. Right. Right. Um, so, um, yeah. So, yeah, people don't seem to make a connection. And perhaps understandably so, because they're not, they're not, those ideas are not presented with them between what their, what their goals are and how the goals that, of what they want out of life requires a free society and a free economy. Mm-hmm. And they don't make the connection, if you like, to the bigger picture. And that's one area where I think classical liberals can do that, is presenting them, yeah, we understand these are your goals, but your goals uh, will be more likely to be achieved in a, uh, a, f- a broader free society. Right. A society that's not only free for you, but also freer for others. Mm-hmm. I, I think this, the school choice thing you brought up before is, is sort of, in, in a microcosm, very applicable to many different issues, because you brought the point, as long as uh, the state or other elements of our culture sort of create arenas where someone's going to win or lose in zero summer or be in control, like a curriculum, then people are only going to feel like it's it's all about battling it out in an arena when in reality maybe the maybe the answer is nobody needs to force the other person to do something we don't need a winner in that arena maybe the arena shouldn't be there right yeah no i think you you it's a good point is that people seem to have a negative some view of the world at the moment that i can only benefit at the expense of somebody else so i need to win the other side needs to lose what we've seen what we seem to have lost is no the 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 world can be, a, can be, should be, a positive zone game that b- both sides can mutually benefit if the institutions are structured in the right way. Right. At the moment, it seems to be it's either, it's either my side or your side. We have these tribes, I win, you lose. Um, we need, really need to change the, the understanding of it. Mm-hmm. But no... In the, if, if the institutions are right, if we have a proper free society, everyone can benefit. Right. And, and I, uh, I'm just keeping an eye on the clock here, Nigel. Um, I'm gonna, I want to ask one more question before we move to the formal wrap up and tie things up. But so I so so I did want to ask you, you know, you, you you've worked and continue to work with a lot of university level students. Uh, you've interacted with graduates, undergraduates and so on. Um, there is a sense from certain people and you, and you hear this impression often um you know, when it comes to the ideas of freedom and being open to, you know, just lowercase l liberalism, that the kids are not all right, so to speak. I, I note that a lot of these opinions do come from people that are external to student learning. You know, you've had a lot of interactions and still do with students. What do you say to that? What are your actual experiences with students and, and, and the, you know, sort of the new minds that are, that are uh, being in the system of academia and so on? Well, so I think that students are very discouraged at the moment. They're, I think, in my view, too pessimistic. They see things are not as they want them to be. Mm. That, I think, creates an opportunity for liberals. If people can, if the liberals can demonstrate we understand why you're disappointed or whatever, uh, but there is a way out. There's a reason to believe that things will get better if we embrace a free society. So it is true, I think most young people now do not appear to be very open or very, well, they, let me rephrase that. They don't really understand what a liberal society would be, uh, but they realise that something is wrong. Mm. 
And I think that gives us a great opportunity to demonstrate, yes, there are lots of things wrong, and a freedom is the way out of this. Right. Well, well, Nigel, I'm going to move us to our sort of more formal wrap-up, our last official question. You know, we we have talked about a lot, and I want to try and see if we could bring everything full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. Um, So what what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether we can can change the world uh, for liberty. In other words, if someone leaves listening to us here today and you, they only take away one, two, or just a few things, if anything, what would you like them to take from this conversation? So my, so the, the two takeaways are is that things used were a lot worse. <laughs> they go back and read a little bit about what the world was like in the in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies. Things were worse. And it, it changed. And then the second part then of it is that don't get too pessimistic. Things, they're bad, but they're not catastrophic. And then the second takeaway from it is that there's no reason why it should continue like this in this malaise that we're currently in. It won't, I don't believe this malaise will continue. But obviously how long this malaise continues depending on, depends on how people respond to it and developing their analysis of what's wrong and what is the right way forward. So generally speaking, I'm an optimist. Great. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So Nigel Ashford, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.